Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is sociologist, author, and documentary filmmaker Jen Schrady. Her primary research focuses on empirically studying digital democracy, digital activism, and the digital divide, which is all, of course, extremely relevant and interesting stuff, which is why I'm just really pleased to have her on the show today. Now, Dr. Schrady currently is an assistant professor at, a, okay, I practiced it, but actually, Jen, I don't speak any French and I don't want to slaughter it. So if you just tell everyone where you work right now. Absolutely. So the simplest way to describe it is I'm based in Paris. I'm a sociologist and I'm at uh, Sciences Po. Okay. That, see, that's much better than I would have done. So, And today, of course, we're going to be talking not about my dreadful pronunciation of French, but about Jen's newest book, The Revolution That Wasn't, How Digital Activism Favors Conservatives. Um, and I thought before we got into what you did and what you found, the best place to start would maybe be, well, what prompted you to write this book in the first place? How did you come to this? Yeah, so I am a sociologist, as I mentioned, but before I got into academia, I had been a community and labor activist, as well as a documentary filmmaker for many years. And I really enjoyed uh, that work, especially as I moved into doing more and more filmmaking, often documenting social movements that were organizing around some social justice issue and organizing against corporate power. And a lot of these folks were very marginalized and didn't have a way to really get their message across. And so documentary filmmaking was a great way to tell these really incredible stories of uh, people facing huge obstacles uh, for just basic uh, survival, whether it's in the workplace or my latest film was based in the Philippines of uh, farmers who were really being murdered trying to defend their land against a golf and tourist resort. But as I was promoting my films, I found that I really enjoyed uh, the college campus visits. I liked the film festivals and the art house theaters, but what really inspired me were a lot of the questions that a lot of students and faculty would ask about why was this happening? Why do we even need to make these films? And it was something that I was also very interested in, specifically this question around why wasn't the mainstream media covering a lot of these issues? So I decided to go back to grad school and did a master's at the Harvard Kennedy School. But when I started, it was in 2006. 
which uh, for any internet historians was really a pivotal year. That was when social media just exploded onto the landscape. Twitter uh, became available. Facebook for the first time was accessible for people with uh, out these elite college uh, connections. Uh, YouTube was diffused into the general public. And so as everyone were ma- was making these claims that the internet was going to transform how communication was made, uh, especially for the average person, I shifted my thinking to not just looking at the mainstream media, but really looking at how could these new digital tools uh, allow people to directly communicate what their issues were, right? So that marginalized people might have their own voice. But as I began to do some research initially on uh, what we call the digital divide, right? So there had been a lot of research on who was getting basic access, right? And that was why it was called a divide. You either had a computer or you didn't. You either had internet access or you didn't. But what I really wanted to look at was not just who's consuming online content, but who is actually producing this online content, which really gets to the heart of this question of digital democracy. Whose voices are we hearing? So I looked at a variety of ways that uh, people either were or weren't creating online content, from blogs to websites, social media, et cetera, and found a pretty substantial social class digital activism or digital production gap. And so when I found this digital production gap, I looked not only at the social class differences, but also a number of other variables, uh, looking at race and gender, uh, as well as uh, what many were calling that it was just an age disparity. But I found that it was really social class that was one of the most persistent barriers. So then I uh, started uh, a PhD program at UC Berkeley in sociology. And pretty soon we had another pivotal year, right? So 2011. So I talked about 2006 when Time Magazine uh, named you the person of the year for creating all this online content. Well, 2011, Time Magazine named the activist the person of the year, which was largely uh, a framing of what was then called Twitter or Facebook revolutions, right? So 2011 was a really um, important year for worldwide activism, right? We had everything from the Arab Spring that had been building for the last few years. Uh, the takeover of the Wisconsin State House, and as well as Occupy Wall Street. So as these events were unfolding, I really wanted to ask the next question, right? So given that uh, there were discussions and arguments made around uh, digital activism for the first time becoming egalitarian, was this actually happening on the ground? How egalitarian was this? So thus I set out to uh, look at digital activism and potential differences. And at, in fact, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about this sense of optimism 
that really infused a lot of people. My sense is, especially on the left. I mean, I was there for, for, for this and this idea that it's kind of flattened things out. You write that it, there was the idea that it gave everyone an equal chance to launch an on-demand revolution with the push of a button. And, you know, why is it, do you think, that so many people were just so extremely optimistic about, uh, about the potential for the internet? Yeah, so if we go back <laughs> and rewind a little bit earlier, I think some of the initial optimism was really uh, in 1999, where social media ha hadn't really uh, hit the stage yet, but it was the web 1.0 era, really. So if we look at 1999, when the World Trade Organization uh, meeting was in Seattle, there was a worldwide protest um, where people from all over the world showed up in Seattle. And at the same time, something called indie media uh, really exploded on the scene where people could post their own information about what was happening. And again, not really rely on the mainstream media, right? So we had this uh, time where people felt like they could write their own stories. They could write their own history. They could communicate to the general world. And so that was part of the optimism. But it was also, you know, again, rewinding a little bit more with this question of email, right? So just connecting people and movements all over the world much more quickly than what we saw, for example, in uh, the late 1980s when people uh, left activists, would go to Central America and experience what was happening uh, with uh, folks organizing against U.S. military intervention and for human rights. And then those people would have to go back to their communities and in church basements and at college campuses talk about what was happening. But all of a sudden, uh, people were able to create their own websites. So there was a lot of optimism. And I think that on the one hand, yes, it's, uh, it's a little puzzling now if we look back. But if we think about that time period, there was this sense that we could really connect with each other on a global level that we weren't able to before. And then with um, the early 2010 movements uh, in the early 2010s, when social media became a key part of uh, people communicating, that level of uh, instantaneous communication was not only around this uh, web 1.0, one to many, right? That anyone can build a website, but if you happen to know about it, then come. But all of a sudden we had social media, which was web 2.0, where it was this many to many conversation that was very quick. And so I think people though got so enamored by uh, these tools. So, right. So this optimism that people had, they were so focused on the tools that it was really difficult uh, for them to see that uh, digital tools were something that not everyone really had access to. And that was something that I would later find in my book that was really key uh, to the differences that we see online. Right. Well, you know, what, what 
occurs to me, and I've, I've studied media history at least a little bit, and this isn't a new story in a way, because if you, know, if you look back at almost any new communications technology, we hear the same sort of things from the, from the techno-optimists of the time. It's going to bring people together. It's going to be a force for education and enlightenment, unparalleled, the wonderful new world, that kind of thing of TV, radio, even telephone and telegraph. And yet we keep on getting it wrong, at least partly wrong. And this is, you know, this is oftentimes really smart people. Uh, do you have any thoughts as to why we keep on making this same overly optimistic mistake? Well, I think that, uh, unfortunately, we know that history does repeat itself. Uh, As you documented all those ways in which people tend to fetishize tools, right? They're very shiny. They're new. And it's something that the people writing these stories, the people who are enamored by them, these early adopters are people that have high levels of education, uh, generally. Uh, that are able to uh, use them on a regular basis. And it's really been a small minority. But what happened was that with this hyper-focus on these tools, we really were not looking in the right place of what was behind them, what was shifting, what was changing. And certainly, I think there's no doubt that initially uh, there was something about digital technology and still is to some extent that is revolutionary. You know, the way in which um, you and I can talk from different continents uh, very simply that, uh, you know, without paying expensive uh, international telephone charges, Um, It's just one of many ways that digital technology has really transformed society. But the problem is that we give too much weight to the tool and not enough to the societal structures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course, there's this whole amazing, as far as I'm concerned, literature on how our tools actually shape us, which is something we tend not to think about until maybe it's too late, uh, certainly. And that seems to be coming to play of social media right now. But I I don't want to get too far off uh, of your book, but going back to that, what you focus on in your book is a specific issue in in one state, and that's this fight for public employee collective bargaining rights in North Carolina. So could you talk a little bit about why you chose that issue in that state? At the time when I was starting this research, I was based in Northern California, and a lot of the questions that I had around digital activism related to differences in a variety of groups and how they might use or not use the internet. So much focus was on left-leaning groups, liberal, progressive, radical, left-leaning movements, whether Occupy Wall Street, this struggle against the WTO, the Wisconsin takeover, all of those stories that you saw both in the media and uh, in academic writing, tended to be hyper-focused on the left. As a result, (laughs) in my efforts to find a political issue that I could really grasp what types of groups were organizing around this issue on both the left and the right, and a little in the center and a little on the fringes, 
Northern California was not the best place to find right. uh, the far right or conservative group. Certainly they exist. Uh, but North Carolina was really an ideal state to capture this ideological variation, as well as uh, other differences that I looked at in terms of social class variation. But in terms of political ideology, it was interesting. So in 2008, Obama won North Carolina by a very small margin. And that was historic, that a Democrat had won the state. And I'm talking after this transition of the South, uh, you know, Southern, old Southern Democrats moving into the Republican Party. So you had a left-leaning uh, political candidate who just barely won. Then four years later in 2012, he just barely lost, right? So this is really a purple state. And as a result, not just the, uh, you know, these electoral wins, but the grassroots groups on the ground also vary tremendously on uh, the political scale. And the issue of collective bargaining rights for public employees was ideal because it captured um, groups and drew the attention of different groups that varied based on their social class. Right. So I was really trying to find an issue where you would have foreign working class groups, middle to upper class groups, as well as those who are more mixed. Um, so I really wanted to uh, get beyond uh, these very visible movements that really tend to focus on early adopters or one particular ideology. And North Carolina was perfect to do that. Right. So without getting too kind of methodological and I've went, I, I, I'd be fascinated by it. You know, I, I love looking at your methodological appendices and so forth, but probably most listeners, not as much met methodology geeks as I am, but can you, can, can you give folks a sense of how you went about studying this in kind of a rigorous empirical manner? That question is so key to yeah. my findings, yeah. the methods. And I actually think it is important that everyday people understand the methods of the reports, the studies, the news articles that we read on a daily basis. Gotcha. And the reason is that when scholars and journalists were so utopian about digital activism, they were really cherry picking uh, these very successful movements. They were just looking at groups that were already using the internet and then saying, oh, the internet is doing these amazing things, right. but only giving us these really extreme outlier examples, very interesting examples. And I do want to give props to the researchers who studied these movements early on when a lot of sociologists, for example, uh, weren't really looking at the internet. And it was important to look at these early movements and to really see what was happening in this digital landscape um, in terms of collective activism. Right. But the problem was that we were ignoring the everyday practices of how most political work is done. Yes, there are spikes of protests and events that happen or elections, but most political activists and political issues are really an everyday 
uh, practice or function. And so that's why I decided to look at this one particular issue. And then from that issue, say, okay, which groups are organizing around it? I didn't pre-select the groups. I didn't just go online and find a lot of groups that were active. I looked at this issue, this labor rights issue, and then looked at which groups were supporting it and opposing it. And then I had um, this sample of 34 different groups. And it was really important that I didn't just look online, that I spent a lot of time on the ground, uh, talking to people, interviewing folks and activists, going to protest meetings, events. Um, but I also did look at what these groups were and were not doing online. So I analyzed all their website data, if they had a web website. I analyzed their entire Facebook footprint, if they had or used Facebook, and the same for Twitter. And I emphasized that point of whether or not they used it because there were a number of groups that were mostly poor and working class that had barely any digital footprint. So the methods really shaped the findings. Right. And that's true for, for any scholar, right? Yeah. And we can't, no one can, you know, devise the 100% perfect study. There are weaknesses in any study. And I will argue that up and down with anyone. Um, but what I was really able to do was discover that among the over 60,000 tweets around this particular issue, only one was from a poor working class group, which is really statistically wow. zero. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you know, in saying that, it reminded me of the difference of sort of looking at the world and policy issues as a journalist, as, as a, compared to looking at it as a social scientist. And it's such a different way of seeing things and of course type of research that you did so in-depth and painstaking is not the sort of thing that you can just create in a week or a month or even you know a year essentially but it's so much richer and more more contextual i think yeah and i think your point about journalism is is key because you mentioned that you are really into following what's been happening with some of these media transformations and as uh, newspapers in particular, but other news media staff have been drastically cut down to one-fourth, one-fifth or less of their size uh, just 15 years ago um, or 20 years ago that uh, journalists have less and less time to go out in the streets to work on these long investigative pieces. There are just a few outlets that can afford to do that, like New York Times or a few other outlets. And so what happens is that journalists are relying more and more on the internet to really track what's important, what's going on. But if a lot of voices are missing right. from that digital footprint, we're really not only looking in the wrong direction, but we're really missing a really important part of society. Right. So the kind of idea that you think, well, I'm on Twitter and everyone I know is on Twitter. So therefore, Twitter is a good representation of the world, when, in which case, you know, it's uh, that's a pretty blinkered view of things. Absolutely. It's not. I think the the problem of 
just following hashtags wherever they may be is really leading us in a direction where we're missing a huge chunk of the population. And so in your research, I mean, sort of the uh, quick version of it would be that you did find a pretty significant activism gap. And in this instance, it actually was a gap that, contrary to what I think a lot of the uh, left, left of center digital utopians would have expected or hoped for, that it's a gap that favors, at least that favored the right in this case, right? Absolutely. I think that it's important to really uh, peel back why that is. Sure. So, yes, the book is, uh, the, the, the title of the book talks about how digital activism favors conservatives, yeah. the revolution that wasn't. And exactly, there was this idea of of personalization, pluralism, participation, what I like to call the three Ps. That was the idea that was initially put forth, that if uh, we're all able to go online, then everyone can have a a voice with uh, political collective action. But the reason why we have uh, this tendency for conservatives to dominate online is that, uh, first of all, there's a really big level of inequality, specifically social class inequality. Mm-hmm. So groups that have uh, not only more resources, but their members who are from more middle or upper class backgrounds are much more likely to harness the power of the web. And those groups are more likely to be conservative. In my study, uh, there weren't any work for working class um, conservative groups. And I think that's very, very common. We often uh, hear about uh, a journalist going to some poor rural Virginia town, talking to a Trump supporter who works at a factory that's been shut down, right? That's this idea that Trump supporters are, are conservatives, that there's a big swath of people who are very poor. That does not bear out in the statistics at all. Uh, conservatives are much more likely to have resources. And that was also mirrored in my study as well and also impacts what's happening online. The other key piece, in addition to class inequality, is institutions. So organizations, groups that have more infrastructure, have more bureaucracy, have more hierarchy, Uh, have the systems in place, the expertise, the division of labor to be able to understand Facebook's latest algorithm, right? How to get those likes and comments, uh, how to um, kind of game the social media system. And even though there was this idea of a very horizontal participatory social media landscape, What I found was the complete opposite, which is something that did surprise me. As a digital divide scholar, as a digital inequality scholar, I was not surprised that there were these social class gaps, although I was really shocked that they were as big as they were that I found. But I was very curious about this finding that it wasn't the horizontal groups that I looked at uh, that had the high levels of digital engagement, it was the hierarchical groups. And certainly groups that are would consider themselves leaderless or more horizontal, used the internet, but not at the same pace and rate as groups that not only had the resources, but the infrastructure 
to make that happen. And so as a result, those groups also tended to be more conservative. Yeah. And so the third, the third say, factor just... But before, yeah, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you about the organization thing, because it, when, when I read that in your book, what immediately came to mind to me were, was the difference that I see, that I saw between Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, which are two groups that kind of formed around the same time. And yet one, it seems to me, was far more effective at, well, getting stuff done. And, and in part, that's, of course, the Tea Party, you know, uh, but in part because of it seemed to me that Occupy was just this sort of, you know, flat organization with no leadership and so forth. And so they couldn't translate their ideas and this into any sort of action plan. And, and it sounds to me like, or it seemed to me like that's the same sort of thing that you found even online, which is built as this, uh, you know, as a world that, well, it doesn't, in fact, it favors flat organization, but no, actually, it's good to have a hierarchy still, even online. The Occupy versus Tea Party example is a really good one because Occupy, yes, was short-lived, but also, again, it was these, this burst of protests, right? And what I really wanted to do is look over the long term. Right. And exactly what we found in this study is that it was really Tea Party activists and other conservative patriot activists who had, tended to have more of an infrastructure. And it wasn't just a question, though, of a group like Occupy petering out and just kind of having a big spike and then dissolving because they were leaderless. There was one group that I'll tell you about, a student organization that was horizontal, had been operating for, for many years, which is pretty impressive for a student group, right? Yeah. Student yeah. groups tend to be the most ephemeral yep. of uh, any political groups, but they uh, had been working for a long time and were supporting labor rights. And for them, it was also how they operated that made the internet less appealing as a key strategy for them. So because they were leaderless or they claimed to be leaderless, they did have some leaders for sure, but they worked really hard to include a lot of people. And for them, the internet was not a great space for decision-making. And this so-called democratic decision-making was so key for them that they felt like what tended to happen online, whether it was through their news group or through email or even social media, that one or two people tended to dominate right. and that it was a lot easier in person to really encourage more people to participate. So this is where this question of ideology really uh, comes in and really overlaps with this idea of organizational structure. Yeah, yeah. Because there's this sense, certainly, that conservatives are more comfortable with hierarchy. And, and so therefore, that would just fit very nicely in with, with this sort of uh, organizational structure. On the one hand, that's true that the conservative groups tended to have more uh, hierarchical structures. However, groups on the left did as well. And uh, the other key point is that this wasn't just a question of Koch brothers funding 
resources, these national groups kind of coming in and orchestrating everything that the Tea Party or other far-right groups were doing. They were democratic in their own sense. Now, they didn't like to use that word democratic um, because they thought that took away from personal freedoms. However, I observed meetings where they were encouraging people to uh, choose the issues that they would work on. And there were Robert's Rules of Order in one uh, meeting that I um, uh, was at. And it's really important to remember that this digital activism isn't just coming from the Breitbarts or from Trump's right. toxic tweets. It's really coming from the bottom up as well. Well, and another thing you mentioned, uh, an important difference is a motivational difference. And the sense I got was kind of part of my larger sense of differences between the left and the right is that the right in, in many instances, certainly in this instance, had sort of a clear core message that motivated uh, motivated people on that side, whereas on the left, it was a little, I don't know, a little gauzier, I guess you could say. Absolutely. The messaging on the left tends to be much more diffuse and diverse, and the messaging on the right tended to be much sharper and clear and focused. And social media works really well in these short, clear right. messages. It's very performative. People are trying to be funny. And the more you can really focus your message with a particular uh, political movement or ideology, the more people you can engage and have participate. And as a result, more people are going to comment or retweet or repost or really engage. And so conservatives were really focused on this idea of freedom, freedom from the state, free market, freedom of information. And groups on the left have a diverse um, array of ideas. Yes, I was focusing on this question of labor rights, but there were a wide variety of groups that participated in this struggle for labor rights in North Carolina. And so you had uh, groups that tended to focus on LGBTQ issues, race issues, uh, workers' rights issues, gender, et cetera. And the, this diverse array of, of groups and issues and messaging just doesn't work as well online. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that, that's really interesting to me because you know, we, could, we could certainly say, well, it's almost always true, other things being equal, that a clear and straightforward message is easier to sell. But what, but what it seems like to me is that in this particular situation, when we're talking about social media, that this medium favors that kind of simple messaging even more than it would in previous types of media. That is an excellent point that I have to think about for a second. Okay. Does, does this messaging, this simplistic, straightforward messaging work better with social media? I would argue that uh, it certainly uh, is easy with social media. But I think even if you think about kind of old school uh, communication, uh, whether we're talking about making flyers or buttons um, or trying to get the news media to cover your event, right? Which still yeah. happens with political groups on, on both sides. Um, 
But the news media also wants these short sound bites. Yeah. It's a real pleasure to talk to you for a longer period of time on a podcast. But in general, the news media still has these very uh, short, dramatic uh, right. messages. And I think, again, this is a story of what's been happening all along. But what digital technology has done is just amplified it. It's on yeah. speed. Yeah. As a great digital activism scholar, Jennifer Earle said, is that uh, you know one way to look at digital activism or digital media is that it's supersized, right? That it's just making it bigger, better, faster. And you know, when I think about this, I say, well, okay, if, if I accept the idea that ideas on the left or the message on the left is often more complex for various reasons that we don't have to get into, but that's kind of depressing because then it suggests that I, my side, if you will, is that sort of a structural disadvantage. And that's a, that's a real bummer. Um, but of course, if I flip that around, that's actually a good thing. In, in the book, you, uh, uh, you talk about uh, a member of the Moccasin Creek Minutemen, one of the groups on the right, who said, it's a great source of education, referring to the internet. I don't know where we'd be without it. And my, my immediate thought was, well, we'd be in a much better place in a lot of ways. But then I thought, well, maybe I'm seeing this through too much of a partisan lens. And actually, this has, it's not the revolution that wasn't, it's the revolution that wasn't for the left. But hey, if you're on the right, this sounds like a pretty good deal. One activist, uh, patriot activist, told me that uh, Paul Revere had a horse. We have the Internet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, conservatives, when I interviewed them, their eyes tended to light up when I would ask about uh, the Internet or what they used or how important it was for their organizing. For them, who often viewed the mainstream media as an enemy or often um, a way in which their movements were either left out of the media or often mischaracterized or stereotyped, that for them, the internet was a way for them to directly get what they called the truth out. On the other hand, groups on the left viewed the internet of one of many organizing tools. Yes, it's important, but in order to get this diverse group of people to the organizing table, whether it's at a meeting or an event uh, or a protest, that we need to use whatever tool we have available to organize. You know, when I, I dug into that comment a little bit by the, by the woman, I believe it was, I mentioned, and so I was curious, well, what is the Moxon Creek Minutemen and so forth? And I found some websites and it quickly took me down, I guess what I would call a crazy hole. I mean, there, there was some stuff that I saw there within minutes, like an argument that uh, uh, birthright citizenship actually isn't guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, which is wow. Um, and there was much more from there. And so maybe this is an advantage to these groups in terms of getting their message across. But in terms of a platform, for misinformation and disinformation, the, the, the negative effects, to me at least, seem to absolutely swamp the positives. There are two ways to look at this. On the one hand, what I found in my research in looking at which side 
for simplicity, I looked at the left and the right, which side was more likely to post what I coded as contentious content, Mm -hmm. right? So this very partisan content, not a straight up news article, what he said, she said, which could come from either Fox News or CNN, um, but something more contentious in terms of how something was reported. I did find that conservatives were much more likely not only to post articles that had this contentious content, but also just more likely to post articles in general, right? And again, that comes to their focus on informationalizing versus right. the left on organizing. Uh, and other scholars have found that so-called fake news is more common among conservatives. On the other hand, if we look at the overall news diet of most people, it tends not to be of these extreme sites, right? And I'm ta- when I'm talking about most people, I'm talking about most conservatives. Uh, and even a lot of the folks that I talk to, yes, they may, you know, watch Fox News, but for some people that even kind of drove them crazy in terms of kind of it was a lot of conservatives felt like it was too performative, which I found really interesting. But that a lot of folks, these conservatives are, you know, listening uh, to um, more mainstream radio, reading more mainstream news media uh, and other uh, outlets like CNN or The Washington Post or even some left-leaning um, uh, right. sites, and which I, I think is really important to remember. There, there's this sense, again, that uh, Trump supporters or conservatives are just these people that are really dumb and they're not really paying attention. And if they would just be given the right information, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that would solve everything. But, yeah. you know, the one of the head of one Tea Party had a master's degree in education. Another leader had a PhD in physics. These are not stupid people. These are very well-read people. Um, and I think it's really, really key to um, understanding what's happening with this conservative populist movement that we have right now. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions related to uh, what, what we social scientists sometimes call generalizability. Um, so you, you found this big gap in in your study. And it occurred to me that there are maybe two ways in which someone might question the extent to which this might apply in other in other instances. First off, geographically, because you know, you might say, well, North Carolina is uh, you know, a very different place, obviously, from say Massachusetts or Nevada or California or what have you. And so therefore what you saw in North Carolina might not apply in other states. Is there any reason to think that that's the case or maybe not so much? Well, first off, this is also an excellent question. And the, the idea of generalizability is really important. And that's really what I was trying to get at in my research design mm-hmm. is to say what's happening on a broader level. Right. And I would welcome other scholars and other people to look at this question of a digital activism gap in other areas. Does it exist? If so, what is the extent? And I think that the issue around labor rights in North Carolina, on the one hand, yeah, North Carolina has one of the lowest levels of unionization in the entire country. On the other hand, I wasn't just looking at um, labor unions. This, This issue really operated more like a social movement. And so I had 
different types of, uh, of groups. So it wasn't just even worker centers, but it was also uh, the North Carolina NAACP uh, student groups, um, more professional uh, organizations. And also, I think that uh, no matter where we are uh, in the world, even where I am in Paris, there is digital inequality. I just had right. my students go out to public libraries in Paris, like I did um, in Berkeley, and look at who is having to use the library for their internet access. And uh, there's inequality here in Paris, in the Bay Area, in North Carolina, certainly in less uh, developed countries as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly in the Northeast, Boston, New York, um, this level of inequality is key. Resources are also important no matter where we are. Um, and this idea of ideology uh, is something that I think would be fantastic to really research more, right? So in a different era, how and how much would this motivation uh, really make a difference in digital activism? Not mm -hmm. only the time period, but also different political contexts. The main point, though, is that we really need to look at this question of a digital activism gap as we talk about the Internet and collective action. Well, you know, when I was thinking about the kind of broader generalizability, it, it seemed to me in, in reading your book that I pulled out basically four factors we've already talked about, money, organization, motivation, and message. And those things I would think would be important no matter what kind of setting geographically or what kind of issue we're talking about. And so that, that kind of general structure would probably still be a really useful way, I think, to analyze the digital activism gap or, or lack thereof, no matter what issue or place you're talking about. Absolutely. And social movement scholars have been looking at uh, some of these differences outside the realm of digital activism for a while. But what, what has been interesting is that a lot of scholars said, wait a minute, the internet is different because we don't have these high costs of participation of having to go to uh, a meeting for every piece of information about a movement or to have to mail a letter uh, or a flyer uh, that we can now communicate simultaneously. And so the costs of participation are lower that I no longer have to pay childcare uh, which has a high cost to go to a meeting, I can do everything online. The problem with this idea of lower costs is that it really doesn't calculate the resources that people already have. Right. And it also doesn't really capture what we're seeing right now in this really very dystopian era that we're in with claims of, you know, Russian hacking and uh, you know, troll farms and fake news. Um, that yes, on the one hand, there are ways in which those problems are heightened by groups with more, as you said, money, organization, and motivation. Um, on the other hand, uh, the internet isn't necessarily the key factor here. It, mm -hmm. it is really these broader structural uh, differences that uh, matter no matter what the technology is. Right, yeah. So if I'm an activist 
listening to this and trying to figure out well, what this might mean for me going forward. Obviously, I already know that having more money is better, other things being equal, and having motivated people behind my cause. But, but it seems like in terms of things that I have maybe more control over, I might say, well, I, I might want to consider more of a hierarchical structure for my organization. And I might also want to try to find a way to make my message uh, a shorter or at least more easily adaptable to this new information environment. Is that, a, is that a fair thing or a decent takeaway from that, from an activist standpoint? I think certainly the the messaging piece, it's not like we have to get rid of uh, this diverse group of ideas and concepts and uh, issues that the left has, but uh, to really think about uh, with a specific campaign, what is a focused way we can really um, generate a conversation, right? So when something goes viral, there's a sense of, oh, it just happened. It's spontaneous. It takes work. So in some ways, the point isn't necessarily that you have to have a hierarchical group to uh, effectively have a successful right. social media okay. campaign. But what hierarchical groups tend to have is this very clear division of labor where someone or a group of people, whether it's staff members who are paid or an army of volunteers that the Tea Party had with a lot of retired people who had resources, that it's really this dedicated expertise that really makes a difference to really understand um, the complexities and the changes that are constantly happening uh, with social media. It's really hard to keep up. Even someone like myself who studies (laughs) this, it's really challenging to figure out, okay, Facebook just changed this on their platform, and how does this then affect, um, you know, getting a notice out about an event coming up? And yes, it takes money to pay Facebook to promote a post. But again, if you understand how it works, um, it might be cheaper than other modes of communication in in some cases. And again, that's where this, this question of work, digital, engagement takes work. Absolutely. That's for sure. Well, on that note, we will close. I've just so thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, Jen. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Your questions were fantastic. Thanks for the detail and the depth. I really appreciated it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporters exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us, and we're reposting things throughout the week 
It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.